This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. Today on the State of Ukraine, a step-back look at the conflict from a foreign policy veteran. I'm Greg Dixon. Richard Haas has served in the White House, the Pentagon, and the State Department. He advised then-Secretary of State Colin Powell on the Iraq War. Later, he was a U.S. coordinator for Afghanistan. And back in April, Haas was part of a group that met independently with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov to talk about Ukraine. Everybody understands that individuals such as myself do not speak for the government. Everybody understands these are conversations, not negotiations. I also you know, did my best to keep uh, our own government informed. I don't think it was dangerous. I think there's a long tradition of, of helpful uh, conversation, interaction, engagement by third parties. For the last 20 years, Haas was the head of the Council on Foreign Relations, and he has recently stepped down. A. Martinez spoke to him on the occasion of his retirement to get his thoughts on the war in Ukraine and other foreign policy issues around the world. A. started by asking Haas what it will take to end Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Wars only end when both sides uh, decide that they are better off uh, with a ceasefire or an armistice or a peace than they are continuing the war. It only takes one country to start a war. In this case, it was Russia but it will take both sides to, to end it. And Russia will have to decide it can live, as will Ukraine, with whatever their situation is on the, the battlefield, because ultimately the negotiating table will reflect the battlefield. And right now, the reason the war is continuing is each side is, believes it is better off uh, with the passage of time. Ukraine believes it will regain more territory. Russia believes that Western support for Ukraine will fade. So if you remember at the beginning, their goal was to essentially eradicate Ukraine as a sovereign, independent country. So both sides have to come to the conclusion that more fighting will not serve their interests. And however distasteful, that compromise at the negotiating table would leave them better off than continued fighting. Do you think that NATO should admit Ukraine right away? I do not. It would be premature. It would get NATO, all 31 countries, or 32 if you include Sweden, uh, involved in a war with Russia, which would be uh, unbelievably dangerous, could escalate to, to, to nuclear weapons. It's also not clear what NATO would be committing itself to. If you were reinventing NATO, would it still be a defense alliance? Well, NATO uh, is a defensive alliance, and that is at its core. On the other hand, NATO also has the ability to act, quote unquote, out of area. So not simply defensively in Europe, but can take undertake other missions as it has over the last few decades. And I also think that Europeans and Americans need to think about other related issues, what Europe's prepared to do in the context, say, of a U.S.-Chinese conflict in the in the Indo-Pacific, what they're prepared to do to inc increase their manufacturing capability of defense articles. So there's many areas in which the, the NATO members need to do more. When it comes to China and the United States' relationship with China, um, very frayed right now, what are the odds uh, that Taiwan possibly becomes the next Ukraine? Uh, it's nothing we can control. China clearly has aspirations 
And that's essentially up to the leadership of China, whether they are going to take the risks and potentially pay the costs of coercion or aggression against Taiwan. We've avoided that now for close to half a century. And the question is whether we, uh, whether diplomacy can continue to finesse this. But you know, I don't have a, a crystal ball, and that's why the United States, Taiwan, Japan, and others are right to prepare for possible um, armed contingencies. Again, uh, we can't shape Chinese dreams. What we can do is shape their decisions, and we ought to persuade them that, however imperfect, from their point of view, the status quo or something close to the status quo is far preferable to an alternative in which they would use military force. Dr. Haas, if it's okay, I, I'd love to get a lightning round of uh, questions with you. Just your first thoughts on on a list of questions that I would bring up just to know where your head is at right now, considering the 20 years you've just wrapped up as president of the Council on Foreign Relations. Is that okay? Yes, sir. All right. Can you look 20 years into the future and tell me who are the superpowers of the world in 20 years? Well, at the moment, you'd have to say the two most likely uh, great powers of the future would be the United States and China. But we may also be entering an era where the ability of any country, no matter how great, to, to dominate is, is diminished. What does international trade look like in 20 years? I think there'll be a lot of international trade in, in 20 years. You just won't have global trade agreements. You'll have a lot of bilateral and regional agreements. But I think the, the era of negotiating these grand international arrangements is, is over. Will world leaders mitigate climate change? If there's major progress realized against climate change, I think it's much more likely to come because of technology, say breakthroughs on something like batteries or breakthroughs in, in other green technologies or the ability to capture carbon. I simply do not believe collective diplomatic action will accomplish much, if anything. Who or what is the biggest threat to peace? Well, what worries me right now as much of anything is our, the, the, the domestic disarray within the United States. The world has been, uh, by historical standards, remarkably stable for 75 years, in large part because the United States played a, an outsized role during World War II, after World War II, and after the end of the Cold War. And the question is, given our domestic polarization, our divisions, whether we will have the domestic unity, the domestic bandwidth to continue to play that role. I'm not so sure. The only thing I am sure is without the United States playing an outsized role in the world, the world will become a far more dangerous place. Richard Haas was a longtime diplomat and White House advisor. He's now President Emeritus of the Council on Foreign Relations. Dr. Haas, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the State of Ukraine from NPR News. Please come back soon. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com switch. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Capital One Venture Card. Earn unlimited 2x miles on every purchase. Plus, earn unlimited 5x miles on hotels and rental cars booked through Capital One Travel. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. What does it mean to be Black in America? 
In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as Black experiences, you'll hear. It means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.